You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. A few weeks ago, we had on Chet Van Duzer talking about sea monsters on medieval maps. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I joked that we'd like to have him on again to talk about monsters on land maps. And then a few days after that episode went live, I got an interesting email from today's guest. He's an art historian who specializes in monsters, and he's written a book about monsters on medieval maps, the terrestrial kind. I felt like we could have talked a lot longer. He's done a lot of scholarly work on both monsters from a historical perspective and from a sociological perspective. Hopefully, you'll enjoy the conversation and what he has to say as much as I did. I'm Blake Smith. This is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. And to paraphrase Pulp Fiction, we're about to get medieval on your Monster Talk. All right. So tonight we're talking with Asa Mittman, an associate professor of art history at the California State University in Chico. He's the co-author of Maps and Monsters in Medieval England and Inconceivable Beasts, The Wonders of the East in the Beowulf Manuscript. He co-edited a research companion to Monsters and the Monstrous. And as if that weren't enough, he's also the president of Mirk Stapa which stands for Monsters, the Experimental Association for the Research of Cryptozoology through Scholarly Theory and Practical Application. Asa, welcome to Monster Talk. And I have to say, after reading your CV, it seems like your being on the show was pretty much inevitable. (laughs) Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So how did you get involved in the serious academic research of monsters? Well, I fell into it more or less by accident. I was uh, doing one of those, I had one of those experiences that we tell our students we don't actually have that good research doesn't result from brilliant aha moments where things all suddenly fit together like they would in a movie. But, um, but that is actually what happened. I was, I was working on uh, medieval maps, which is the other main thing I work on, and maps and monsters go together fairly well. Um, and I'm fascinated by it, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I was simultaneously taking a course on um, uh, Japanese Edo period woodblock printing. And I'd gone to the library at Stanford to find uh, some sources for this Japanese art paper. And the library, where they have the Asian collections there, are shelved in Chinese and Japanese. There's no English language uh, reference points to be had. And so I was wildly in the wrong section. And I wound up taking out a book on 8th century China instead of 18th century Japan. Um, And I was looking back and forth. It had a map in it. And it the map 
looked very different formally from the English one. But the longer I looked at it, the more I realized they basically functioned the same way. Um, and that people had been, I thought, misunderstanding the English maps all this time by thinking about them as linear instead of as radial. And um, this Chinese map was just a series of four rectangles uh, concentrically placed. And the central one was something like the princely domains. Normal culture puts itself right at the heart of the map. And then the next one was the zone of the allies, and then the zone of the allied barbarians. And then the last ring of the map, the outermost edge of the world, was labeled the zone of cultureless savagery. And that's got to be as evocative a label as has ever been on any map. But that's actually how the medieval uh, English maps work as well, except for a key difference, which is that Instead of having England at the center, they have Jerusalem at the center. Just to, and England, uh, uh, I was just going to say, that's also how Atlanta's laid out. But <laughs> yes. This is a very common. Uh, but what, what makes the English one so odd is that England is out in that zone of cultureless savagery. It's out in the margins, surrounded, if you look around the edges of that map and a lot of others, completely surrounded by various kinds of monsters. Uh, and so then I started investigating the monsters on the maps, and then I started investigating the monsters off of the maps, um, and found that anywhere you look in any kind of medieval culture, you will find monsters. Uh, They are not a sideline, not a weird and peripheral phenomenon. They are everywhere in every kind of book you can imagine, in any kind of architecture you can think of, uh, in any kind of decorative art, everything. They are there. They're in every kind of work of literature you could look for. They were really central uh, to how medieval people understood themselves in the world. Um, and so the more I got interested in that, the more I got interested in monsters on their own. That's neat. So have you run into a lot of academic pushback for focusing on this topic? I have. Um, less so lately, which I take as a sign of some great success. But when I first started doing this in graduate school, people would say, oh, what are you working on? And you're supposed to say something like, I'm doing a... Uh, Deridian spin on Foucault's analysis of the, you know, whatever, you know, you were supposed to be doing something that sounded very serious and um, within academic confines very traditional. And I would say, I'm writing about monsters. And it took me years to figure out how to say that without it sounding like a joke. People would laugh. I said, no, 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 I'm really, that's really what I do. I'm writing about <laughs> monsters. That's, that's my dissertation. It's really what I'm trying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did come across various forms of pushback against that. The most interesting one was when I was out, um, I was actually on a job interview. This was several years ago. And uh, I'd given my lecture, uh, which was on the monsters that are in the Beowulf manuscript, um, which has lots of monsters most people don't know are in there. And then I... Uh, was at the luncheon where they have uh, the appearance of informality, but in fact, it's all still part of the interview. And one of the committee members said, hey, so where do you see yourself in 20 years? And of course, I had no idea where I'd be in 20 years. But my off-the-cuff answer was, I would like to be the head of the world's first institute for monster studies. Um, And they all looked pretty miserable about that. Well, okay, this is going poorly. Uh, And then after that, a member of the department who was not on the committee asked me to come to speak with him in his office. And he leaned across his table and he said to me, Listen, Asa, you got to drop all this monster stuff and start doing real scholarship. And in the context of a job interview, what do you say? You know, I said, well, I think it is real scholarship. There are many people working on it. It's an important <laughs> tradition, et cetera, et cetera. But... I was, I was flabbergasted. I was floored uh, by what struck me as a, a very um, narrow-minded conception of what scholarship is, which is to say that scholarship should be defined by the subject of study, not the approach or the quality of the results. Whereas I would say every subject matter is worth study. There aren't subjects that are uninteresting Whatever you study, if you know enough about it, you will conclude it is the hinge pin around which all global culture turns. 
And monsters do this just as well as anything else. And, oh, right, they're also really fun and interesting. I agree. I <laughs> I read that in your introduction, and I thought that was a, a really telling uh, and a story, I guess, a story that I had a lot of sympathy for because um, it, it's it's funny. Everybody accepts monsters, I think, culturally, but um, as a as a form of entertainment or as a thing, sort of um, what an existential thing to be afraid of. I don't know how many people think there are real monsters anymore. Um, some do. I mean, especially in you know, part of what this show does is research cryptozoology. But for me, I, I'm an English major who kind of came to be a science junkie kind of later in life. And, and uh, the show has often straddled the line between hard science and liberal arts. So uh, it seems like your research probably went the same way. How, how have you fallen in that spectrum and how, how does your work go towards in that, in that way? Well, um, I am very much on the humanities end of the spectrum. Um, I... Uh, I'm married to a scientist, and so I've had a lot of uh, vicarious scientific instru- uh, instruction. My original childhood goal was to uh, grow up to be Jacques Cousteau, but then I took chemistry and gave that up. <laughs> um, but uh, but I've come to these really from the perspective of art history, literary history, cultural studies, uh, and so my main interest really is in how cultures have used monsters. I mean, it's one thing to wonder whether they're real or not real, and I've written about that a bunch of times in a bunch of different ways, because it's the first thing I always get asked uh, by people is, oh, well, did medieval people really think there were monsters? Uh, and so I've grappled a lot with that. Ultimately, it's not the question that animates my interests, mm-hmm. but I think it's important enough that I've turned to it several times. So, so let's define a monster for this conversation. What, what is a monster? It's a fabulous question, and it's one that I really should be able to answer with a nice, pithy response after working on them for 12 or 15 years. Well, we've got right? 45 minutes, so do your best. <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, well, the thing is that it's a term that shifts in meaning dramatically from period to period uh, and from place to place and even from context within a single period of place. Uh, from context to context. What most people have discussed it in um, relation to cultural history have done is they've looked at the use of the term at particular points in history. So, for example, we can see how uh, various early medieval uh, theologians wrote about the word monstra, which is what we get the word monster from in English. Uh, And um, so there are sort of two competing etymologies that they come up with. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo says that monstra comes from demonstrare, that is to demonstrate or to show and he uses a series of puns to to essentially say God put monsters on the earth to show his infinite power, his ability to break the laws of nature. It's not that they didn't think there were laws of nature, but they thought you know, a person with a dog's head was outside of the laws of nature and yet possible because of the infinite power of God. Etymologies of Latin words to understand God's plan for the universe says that, no, no, it doesn't come from demonstrare. It comes from monere, which means to warn. And he says they're warnings from God against sin. So this is how the, uh, the question has been tackled by a lot of people who've written about this. They say, all right, in this period, people thought that. In that period, people thought something else. So you get into the early modern period, and the monster becomes more of uh, focused on scientific, early scientific analyses, prodigal births, uh, you know, the two-headed calf or uh, two-headed person born, and how uh, to grapple with these. Are they portents? of divine vengeance, or are they the result of imperfect conditions in the womb? And these sorts of things come to be debated. But one thing I found that nobody seemed to have really done in uh, the scholarship that I was looking at is say, when we use the term, what do we mean? And I think it's really important because I've come to think what most of us mean by monster, not the cryptozoological community, um, and not Augustine and Isidore, but the average modern layperson, when they say monster, they think something big 
and scary and dangerous, that does not exist. How do we know what the difference is between something horrifying, terrifying, and real and something horrifying, terrifying, and not real? What I came to conclude is that for something to be a monster, to me anyway, it has to not only be big and scary like a rabid dog, um, and not only big and dangerous like a great white shark or a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something, um, but it also has to somehow fundamentally destabilize our understanding of the world. And a rabid dog doesn't do that unless its behavior is such that it's well outside of anything that a rabid dog ought to do. If we, you know, and I, it's been a long, long time since I think I've seen the movie and not read that novel. But, you know, if, if the dog was punching in the code to the security system to kill the people, <laughs> then it would rise to the level of being a monster because that would be a moment of instability when we would feel like our understanding of how the world works is now inoperative. You know, that that's interesting. I, I think a lot about the uh, metaphorical impact of, of what a monster is. And it seems like to me, again, this is coming from being an English major, but it, the metaphor of a monster almost always represents this sort of perfect outgroup metaphor, right? Um, and we spend so much time, um, whether we're cognizant of it or not, uh, breaking everybody up into in-group, out-group uh, uh, segmentation. Monster talk. A brief editorial interruption here. While this episode is focused on monsters and medieval maps, it seemed to be plagued by another monster, the nefarious gremlin. After interviewing Asa, I discovered that nearly all of the original interview had turned into digital garbage. Asa generously came back to re-record the missing portions, but even then we had difficulties and part of the interview broke up into hundreds of useless files. I did manage to get most of it back. What's missing here is a brief exchange about the ideas of race and science. We discussed the origins of racial ideas, the horror of eugenics, and how science got that wrong. And finally, we came back to the question of could science and education usher humanity out of the kind of in-group, out-group thinking that causes so much strife and horror in modern times. I return you now to that discussion where the technology was able to restore the recording. Uh, the term race itself actually doesn't come into use. It's a sort of neologism of, I think, the 14th century that's invented to talk about hunting dogs uh, and only then makes its way to talking about nobility. So we hear about a noble race. So, for example, French nobility are one race and French, French peasantry are a separate race. Uh, and so it's only later that race comes to be even applied to, say, the distinctions that people might see between Africans and Europeans say. I think it's, science has pretty clearly demonstrated that people are all the same species, that there's really no difference between us. You know, these sort of uh, cultural differences are way more significant, I think, than, than any concept of race, or that seems to be the case anyway. Yeah. The, the American Anthropological Society has a wonderful statement on race, and it's very clear on the completely culturally constructed nature thereof. Are these ideas outmoded in modern culture? Would that they were, right? Um, I mean, you know, the Middle Ages had its wild men, which were these hairy, semi-human guys who lived out in the forest and were both sort of loved and feared and hated all at once. Sound familiar to someone who works on Bigfoot, right? Um, the Middle Ages had its sea serpents. We've still got Nessie and Champy and so on, right? Exactly. Um well, the Middle Ages had lots of ideas about Jews, and modernity has not shifted a ton from that. Um, I, I, lots of the very negative tropes are still active. I think the most common sort of uh, pejorative used to describe Jews uh, in the Middle Ages, probably the most common, is perfidious, um, which means sort of like willfully refusing belief. They thought that Jews understood that Jesus actually was the Messiah, but stubbornly, uh, stone-heartedly refused to change their traditional ways, um, which doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. But, you know, we shouldn't really try and find the logic in racism, I guess. Uh, but 
all it takes is a quick internet search to find that all of the tropes about Jews are still quite operative. And I've actually got two sort of two stories I could tell about that. Um, one is a, a, a classroom episode that I had. This was a couple of years ago now. Um, but I was teaching my medieval art survey, and we had spent about a month discussing monsters. And we'd looked at the Wonders of the East, and we'd looked at St. Augustine, and we'd looked at Jerome, all of these interesting texts. And we've read lots of sort of theoretical approaches to monsters and the monstrous, trying to get sort of a conceptualization of how the Middle Ages constructed monstrosity and viewed monsters, which is one way that they conceived of uh, what theorists often refer to as the other, right? These are something who is not the norm, someone who is outside of whatever the sort of dominant cultural paradigm is. Right, so we had been talking about monsters and um, sort of this whole setup on otherness, uh, and this was all, in a way, a setup so that we could go on to talking about other kinds of otherness in the Middle Ages. And the next three units were Saracens, that's medieval uh, Christian concepts about Muslims, Jews, and then women, who were also turned into monsters in, in medieval rhetoric in many ways. Um, and so uh, we were spending, I don't know, a week or two on images of Jews, and we'd read uh, a wonderful book uh, by Deborah Strickland called Demons, Saracens, and Jews Making Monsters in the Middle Ages. Um, and it makes this wonderful argument about how in the Middle Ages they felt that the Bible was fixed. You couldn't muck around with the text, but medieval Christians had switched how they viewed the contents of the New Testament because when it was written, the Romans are the bad guys, right? Clearly. <laughs> yeah. But later on, let's say around the rule of uh, Charlemagne, the Carolingian period, so, you know, 8th century ninth, into the 9th century, the, uh, the Romans come to be rehabilitated. We get the first uh, dawnings of the idea of the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne is crowned emperor of Rome. They decide they like the Romans, so the Romans can't be the bad guys anymore. So they look in the book and they find a different bad guy. And those bad guys turn out to be, of course, the Jews. Um, who are often described as the Jews, this kind of monolith. Um, and so we, uh, so what they did in the images in the manuscripts, because they couldn't change the text, they turned the Romans in the images into Jews. So Pontius Pilate, for example, comes in the images to be a caricatured Jew, and you can probably envision what the caricatures look like. They tend to be, uh, you know, the, the most dominant feature is giant hooked noses. Um, but they're also represented in certain other codified ways. For example, always in full profile or almost always, which exaggerates the, the view of the nose. And so because they couldn't change the text, they changed the images. And it's a very subtle way of doing that. But thereby they make uh, the Jews again and again into, quote unquote, the killers of Christ. Uh, and this is a trope that remained a very, very common throughout the Middle Ages. So we were going over all this in class, and I had on screen a, a, an absolutely horrifying image. It's the most extreme uh, anti-Semitic, maybe the most extreme image I know uh, uh, from medieval manuscripts. It's from a Psalter, which is the book of the Psalms, and it has a section in it uh, of the Passion of Jesus, which is the period of uh, the, his arrest and torture and eventual uh, execution by crucifixion. And it's the, I had this image up which had the arrest of Christ. So this is the moment when Judas kisses him as an act of betrayal to identify him to the Roman soldiers. But all the Roman soldiers are represented as Jews, and they are represented as horrifyingly caricatured. Yes, with the giant noses, but also huge bulbous heads and giant sort of goggle eyes that are rolling back in their skulls and enormous razor fangs and they're holding weapons that are made of giant bones with uh, uh, nails sticking out of them. They are absolutely monstrous and, and horrifying. And I'm explaining that and there's this one woman in my class who is looking angrier and angrier. Now she's looked kind of displeased with everything I've said all semester uh, but finally she couldn't take it anymore and she just burst out, interrupted me in the, in the middle of the class and said... I don't see what you're trying to get at. I wanted to say, lady, I'm not trying to get at anything, you know? But uh, she said, I don't see what you're trying to get at because, first off, 
that is what Jews look like, more or less. Wow. And anyway, she continued, they did kill Jesus. Wow. And then she went on to shriek out the the biblical passage um, that in every translation I've ever seen from the Latin reads, and they said, take him, take him away with him. And what she shouted out was, and they said, uh, kill him, kill him, crucify him. Which I later looked up, and it comes from a, a sort of discredited translation, which uh, the head of the American Bible Society has argued may uh, convince ignorant readers um, that the acts of the Pharisees uh, in the first century are equatable with the acts of all the Jews throughout all the time. Um, and there she was, my student, as, a, as an exemplum of that notion. Um, and yeah, I mean, this was, this was shocking and, 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 and horrifying and um, really quite disturbing. And actually, uh, so she disappears for about a month. No word, don't know what's going on. And then she shows up in my office with some absolutely banal question like, uh, was that paper supposed to have endnotes or footnotes? I forget, you know. And I didn't know what to even say. I wanted to say, can you just leave, you know. Uh, but I, <laughs> no, well, it's, um, it's footnotes, you know. And then uh, she turned to leave and then she turned back. And she, she said, you know, that thing that every racist in the history of the world has ever said. She leaned in and kind of whispered, like this was, you know, something intimate between us. She said, you know, um, you know, I wasn't talking about you, right? Wow. Thanks. No, I feel so much better. You only meant my parents or and, uh, my <laughs> grandparents or my friends growing up or, you know, my kid. Not me. So that's fine. That's totally fine. Now I feel much better now. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Uh, But yeah, so these medieval uh, tropes, these medieval biases and prejudices live with us today unquestionably and it's by no means is it merely anti-semitism that's a very common one but uh, anti-islamic tropes from the middle ages are still very active and you can find them uh in contemporary american media with great frequency uh but so are tropes about uh africans about uh eastern peoples um, the, the most common group of monsters probably uh, from the Middle Age, from the ancient world and the Middle Ages, is this group called the Wonders of the East. Uh, and they thought the East was, what they called the East was like India and um, uh, uh, Ethiopia, which was sort of a generic term for North Africa. And the tropes that they had about the East, so to speak, which was this India-North Africa section, were that it was this land of sort of 
decadence of, of wealth and uh, sort of looser sexuality and morality. Uh, it was a place of great danger, but also great temptation and possibility, um, which are exactly the tropes that are used in modernity to refer to the Far East. It doesn't even matter that it's a different East. They just take the same tropes and apply them to wherever the East happens to be in any particular time or place. Um, so, yeah, these things don't go away. Uh, it seems to me often, I feel like, you know, anything that somebody ever wrote down in a manuscript a thousand years ago is just sort of there for all of us for eternity. It, it's just too bad that, that we can't seem to quite educate ourselves or teach ourselves or train ourselves or better ourselves out of the, I think, very harmful modality of thought. I, well, and... What I would love to think is that if we could actually educate everybody, it would all go away. Um, and while I think education does help, there are plenty of very well-educated people. I'm sure it's true in the cryptozoology community that there are plenty of very educated people who are out there looking for Bigfoot and Nessie and, and so on. Um, but I think there are plenty of very well-educated people who also hold all of these um, you know, 1,000 and 2,000-year-old biases. Yes. Uh, as as deep seated parts of their their worldview, um, with a sort of a, a blinkered quality, where whereby they are um, knowledgeable and uh, literate in all sorts of venues, but for this one where they have a certain uh, uh, wall around. Well, we better talk about your book a little. <laughs> Certainly, <laughs> the basic way that medieval cartography works. A great common um, way of conceiving. The world in the Middle Ages was that uh, they knew it was round, but they still viewed it as having, by, by they, the educated people, geographers, uh, theologians, these folks, were well aware that the world was a sphere. Um, but they still conceived it as having a center, and that center was Jerusalem. Uh, and this came from uh, biblical passages. The Psalms say God performs the work of salvation in the middle of the earth. Uh, the book of Ezekiel says, uh, this the Lord God said, I have placed Jerusalem in the middle of the people and around her are the lands. Um, and some early uh, Christian and early medieval uh, theologians followed up on this. So, for example, uh, Jerome, who's a very influential uh, um, theologian, writes that uh, Jerusalem is situated in the midst of the peoples of the earth. So he reads the passage in Ezekiel uh, and takes that to um, to be literal, that there is a center point, Jerusalem is it. Uh, and this becomes more literal in, in some other texts. Uh, for example, some uh, medieval pilgrims coming from Ireland and England leave us texts where they talk about uh, the center of Jerusalem. And at the very center is a place called Compass. And that's where God placed the point of his compass to draw the circle of the earth. Uh, and this is one of those wonderful cases where Instead of man following something that God did, uh, man takes something that he did and has that be the thing that God does. So medieval cartographers had for a while been making maps by putting a compass point in Jerusalem and then using the other end to draw the circle of the world. And so then retrospectively they decide, ah, that's how God drew the world. And then that becomes literalized in this place, compass in the center of Jerusalem, which uh, they thought... Uh, that, that there was a column there which at noon would cast no shadow because the sun would be straight overhead and it was right in this dead center. So the center is Jerusalem and this is the sort of perfect and holy uh, core of the earth. And then as we work out uh, in radial bands, uh, we go through sort of the, the main biblical locations which are around that. So that would be everything from you know Mount Sinai to Bethlehem and so on. And then we work out further and we get into these kind of normal medieval places like, you know, Italy and Germany and France. And then we get to the very furthest edge of the world. Um, and this is where the monsters tend to be clustered, not exclusively, but uh, the greatest concentration of monstrosity is really at the edge of the world. And this makes sense from a medieval perspective, which views the world not as the result of plate tectonics and uh, continental drift and migrations of animals and evolution, but rather as a kind of static product laid out by God where location on the Earth's surface can be equated to location within a divine plan, 
that speaks about the salvation of peoples. Um, and so at the edge, we find an enormous array of monsters, uh, uh, sort of in particularly concentrated in the, um, the section between the Nile River uh, and the ocean, which runs around the edge of the world. And what we get there are often the creatures I mentioned before, these wonders of the East, which are a group of creatures that derive out of classical sources. Uh, Herodotus, who's referred to as the father of history, is the sort of the first major ancient Greek historian. Uh, he gives us an account of them, which he's actually gotten from some other authors uh, whose works are, are now mostly lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he passes them on to Pliny, uh, the first century Roman author, who puts them into his natural history text, which has you know chapters on rocks and on trees and on various peoples and it's got a couple of sections on on monsters which are quite wonderful and they get passed on into the middle ages in various forms and in various uh, languages most notably in the latin tradition but they get translated into old english which um uh uh, my friend and colleague uh, susan kim and i uh we very recently published a book on the wonders of the east uh in the beowulf manuscript and this is an old english or anglo-saxon version of that text uh but what these creatures are, are um, a lot of them are semi-human hybrid creatures. So, for example, the cynocephali, which are people with dog's head, cyno dog, right? Canine mm-hmm. is the you know, from that same root. Um, so the cynocephali, cephali means head. Uh, these were fire-breathing, giant, dog-headed uh, people eating creatures. Some people call them cannibals, but if you're calling them cannibals, you've accepted their humanity right off, which I think is an ambiguous uh, determination. So there are headless people. There are also uh, uh, people with one arm, people with one leg. The, the wonderful skiopods have one giant foot on which they run very swiftly uh, and which they use to shield themselves from the hot uh, equatorial sun. Um, the So we basically get three main types, four main types of mon- monstrous peoples in these wonders of the East which show up around the edges of the world. We get hybrids like uh, the dog-headed people uh, and centaurs and fawns and bird-headed people and so on. Uh, we get creatures characterized by excess. The uh, maritime Ethiopes have four eyes. Uh, there are giants. Uh, we get creatures uh, uh, who deviate from normative humanity as defined in the middle ages by lack so skiopods with one leg uh cyclopses with one eye um and then finally we get ones who differ primarily in behavior which are in ways some of the more interesting i mean the images of them don't tend to be quite as exciting as the images of headless people or or dog-headed cannibals but um for example uh there are a group of people uh called the homo dubii who eat raw fish (gasps) Weird. Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually planning to have sushi tonight. But uh, <laughs> the um, dietary laws uh, are, are a very major way by which societies define themselves. Think, for example, of kosher regulations uh, for Jews or halal regulations for Muslims. Food taboos are very important. Many Americans eat meat but would look quite askance at, well, let's say, while sitting down to have uh, chicken and turkey would look quite askance at someone who was eating canary and parrot, right? True. Um, so food taboos are a very important way that people separate out uh, uh, others from themselves, uh, in-group and out-group sort of relations. And so some of the groups are defined that way. Others are defined by sexual practices. Uh, so, for example, um, there's one group who show up in this rather interesting and problematic text called The Travels of uh, the Book of John Mandeville, The Travels of John Mandeville, who is a uh, fake, a fictional English knight um, from St. Albans, uh, who, whose text claims to be a true account um, and has all sorts of interesting ways by which it tries to trick the reader into thinking it is true. And it was taken as literal truth. And in fact, uh, Columbus had that as his bedside reading all the way on his voyage across the Atlantic. Um, and it, I think, deeply impacted how he viewed the quote-unquote Indians he found, uh, because it's a text about a European who goes to the to India um, and finds all sorts of horrible monsters there. And so Columbus uh, anticipated finding horrible monsters and 
found real people, mistook them for monsters. Claims, for example, to have found cannibalism, which he probably did not. Claims that he kept hearing about one-eyed, dog-headed people on uh, all sorts of islands. Um, and, uh, you know, once you've conceived of people through this paradigm of monstrosity, of course, um, killing them off becomes not merely a, a, a neutral in terms of morality, but can often be seen as a moral good, right? Ridding the world of horrible monsters. So um, the book of John Mandeville has a group that is uh, wife-swapping communists. You know, yeah, so they hold all property in common and uh, share their wives with one another. The men share their wives with one another in common. And so, again, there's no indication that these people have any kind of physical deviation from from Europeans who are always sort of the prototype in these texts. Uh, sort of the, the unvoiced assumption is that, for example, if a text says, this is a person with no head or this is a person with a dog's head, the assumption being made by, say, a medieval English reader is – this is a person who looks like an Englishman, but has no head. Who looks like an Englishman, but has a dog's head. Um, so the prototype, the unvoiced prototype, is always the self. And, of course, this carries on today, right? Why do aliens almost invariably have two arms and two legs and two eyes and one nose and one mouth, right? Uh, because even when we're trying to envision the thing from as far away as we can imagine, what we wind up doing is distorting ourselves, Yeah. Yeah, no, we've talked about that on the show before. They, I'm sure. Can you imagine? I mean, if you look at the world, I mean, just the life on Earth, we're not the prototype. We're not the we're not the template of life. I mean, look at beetles. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> yes, right. Is that? Um, I, I, yeah. It. What's his? Uh, Island biogeography. Um, Quammen, David Quammen. Uh, argued that uh, I think it was David Quammen argued that uh, if there is a, a creator God, he really had a thing for Beatles. He did, yeah. That, I, I made the joke one time that uh, you know, as Adam was uh, naming the animals, he you know he, he named them, and then he got to the Beatles. Is you've got to be joking, right? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, um, there's some very interesting medieval images of Adam naming the beasts uh, because you get your you know your sort of generic quadruped kind of things, these sort of antelope looking things, and deer and horses and cows, and you you get your birds and your fish, but you also in some of them get unicorns, centaurs, griffins. Um, and so when they have this sort of moment of creation in the Garden of Eden, some of them anyway are picturing uh, the monsters that we think of as already a part of this uh, creation of God. When I think about monsters in medieval art, um, one painting comes to mind, and, and that's uh, Hieronymus Bosch's uh, Garden of Earthly Delights, which is just such a bizarre painting to me when i look at it i see something like the medieval twilight zone i don't know how else to describe okay. it it's just fantastic um have you looked at that what is that about or what's what's going I, on in that painting i have it, it is the most remarkable painting i i am a professional looker at paintings right this is what i do for a living and with my life and uh, it is the most remarkable painting i've ever seen in person i saw it about a, a year and a half ago it's in the prado um, and it is breathtaking and astonishing and luminous. Um, it's it's sort of late for for me in terms of research. I, I've actually written a tiny bit about it, but um, but it is a, a phenomenal example of the deployment of monstrosity. And uh, so the way it works is it, it's an altar. Well, it's set up like an altarpiece. Nobody knows what it was for. We know very little about Hieronymus Bosch. Um, we. We don't have any diaries from him, letters, anything like that. We don't have a contemporary who wrote about him. Um, We know that he married uh, the rich lady who lived in the big castle overlooking the town of Sertogenbosch, from which he gets uh, his surname. Hieronymus is just Jerome, so he's Jerry Bosch. Um, Jerry (laughs) died from Bosch. Um, But uh, so it's an 18 foot wide triptych. So that's a a hinged three panel painting. And if you close the, the, panels, the two side wings, what you see is an image of the creation of the world. I think it's the the third day of creation. And the earth is weird. It's spherical, but it's sort of cut in half in the middle. And so um, what you see is a kind of flat earth, but then with a half sphere of ground beneath it, and then a kind of glass dome over the top. So it almost looks like a sort of terrarium. 
Um, and it's cold, and it's grace. Uh, it's all in shades of gray, called grisaille. And God is there, but he's this tiny figure, sort of floating away into the top left corner of the painting, as if he's kind of removing himself from his creation. He doesn't seem very thrilled with what's going on. Uh, and this is before he's even created people. Uh, and if this thing functioned like an altar, that's what people would have seen most of the time. Most altar pieces were kept closed most of the time and opened for feast days and so on. Um, but we don't know what this thing was, and it's very hard to envision that it hung over an altar anywhere. But when you open it up, what you get is this astonishing, riotous, um, clamorous scene, or three scenes. Uh, uh, the painting takes its name, The Garden of Earthly Delight, from the central panel. Uh, the left panel is the Garden of Eden, and we see uh, a very youthful-looking, should be God the Father, but a figure that looks much more like uh, Christ, introducing Eve to Adam. And Adam is kind of reclining underneath a rather exotic tree, which is probably the tree, uh, the tree of knowledge, and Eve is uh, uh, sort of modestly falling to her knees by his reclining side. Um, so that's the, the first panel. And all around are wonderful animals. There's a, an elephant uh, with a monkey on its back and a giraffe, uh, as well as um, lots of rather creepy things. There's a three-headed bird. There's a unicorn fish. There's a sort of duck-billed merman floating in a black pool reading a book. Uh, there's a, a sort of nasty hybrid creature eating a frog. There's a cat that's caught some kind of grotesque creature and is eating it. So things are not quite as they should be in the garden where, you know, the lion lies down below and, and everything should be perfect. There's all sorts of scenes of animals killing and eating one another and strange, horrifying creatures lurking all throughout. Um, then we go to the center section and it is this sea of naked figures and they're sort of self-consciously, willfully supposed to be a global array. So there are um, dark-skinned figures who are uh, caricatured in terms of their facial features as African figures. So they're supposed to be, I think, the entire world. Um, and they're having all sorts of associations with one another, many of them uh, uh, obliquely or overtly sexual. Uh, there's a, a man who seems to be having sex with a gigantic strawberry. Uh, there's a couple clearly getting it on inside a giant mussel shell. Uh, there are people um, groping one another inside giant clear berries. Um, and on and on and on. Um, and then the, uh, the right panel is a hell scene. And it's a freakish and terrifying hell scene. Um, not your usual, just standard demons pulling at people with flesh hooks or something. It's, it's a much more sort of specific and nuanced vision of a hell. So, for example, uh, there's a gambler and he's nailed to a card table. There's a hunter, but he's been uh, killed and strung up by a giant rabbit, which is carrying him on his spear like his quarry. Um, there's a, a, a man, presumably lascivious in life, who's being molested by a fat pig that's dressed in a nun's habit. Um, and on and on and on and on. Um, now, the, the basic setup, from a distance, it looks like a very sort of normal setup where what you have in many medieval triptychs is a last judgment scene. This is when, um, at the end of time, the souls are judged, the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. So you have the nice scene, heaven to the left, the bad scene, hell to the right, and in the center is a scene of judgment. What that does is it presents viewers with two possibilities. You can, uh, you know, if you were good, you get to go to the left side, which it's on the left because Christ is usually in the center painting or often in the center painting, and it would be his right side, that's his good side, um, his dexterous side, literally, uh, and his left side, literally. His this one doesn't work that way because it's not heaven. As we've got the beginning to our left, and if we read, up, I think, his caricature of our world, this sort of orgy of sex and greed and, and, and sort of exuberance of life, sort of heedless and hedonistic. And then the right, therefore, becomes a future scene. So you go, everybody goes from the garden to our current world, and then it would seem, because there's no heaven to be found in this image, everybody goes to hell. And uh, so Yabash... Yeah, for all of the sort of fun that looking at his paintings are, and they're incredibly enjoyable to look at, I think they're very pessimistic, very dark images that do not hold out a lot of hope for humanity. 
How did they survive? Uh, well, a lot of the Bajas, this is the way they wound up in Spain. Um, so the Netherlands, where he was from, uh, became a Spanish colony. And the Spanish king, E. Philip II, I think, um, seems to have been very fond of Northern Renaissance painting. That's the, the, the period that we refer to these. And so he uh, had a lot of them brought to Spain where they were preserved in royal collections. And so uh, in the room with this, with the Garden of Earthly Delight, there are maybe a half dozen other Bosch paintings, uh, including his wonderful Haywain triptych, which functions similarly where you have in the center painting um, our world full of all sorts of wonderful monsters and demons. But they're, the demons in that image are actually dragging the people across the divide of the frame into the hell scene to the right. Um, so it goes straight across from image to image there. Uh, and the, the, the tabletop of Seven Deadly Sins, which is an incredible work of art, it's actually a tabletop. It's displayed horizontally in the gallery. And it has around the edges uh, the Seven Deadly Sins, which in, in medieval art are very often depicted as these sort of very... Um, grand personification. So greed might be a figure with sort of claw-like grasping hands reaching for a bag of money or something like that. But for Bosch, they're really banal, ordinary, humble kinds of sins. So anger is uh, two drunk guys outside a bar room brawling with each other. Vanity is a woman alone in her bedroom looking at herself in the mirror. Um, and in the center of it is a giant eyeball that must be, I don't know, two feet across. And in the center of the eyeball is Jesus, risen from the tomb after the resurrection. And you can see he's showing the wounds that he got during the crucifixion. And written around the iris, uh, it says uh, in Latin, cave, cave, deus, videt, which is uh, beware, beware, God sees. Uh, so what I take that as is that uh, God doesn't only see, like, grand, vast sins. He sees the tiny, petty, little sins when you're alone in your room. Um, so, yeah, again, a very pessimistic perspective, I think, and a, 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 a fairly nasty one. Uh, I tend to envision him, though this is sort of all in my head, you know, but I envision him up in his wife's castle sort of looking down with scorn at the populace below him. I can't imagine dining at a table that had gluttony uh, as one of the sins. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and the glut- there is a scene of gluttony on it, and it's a very heavy set man. It's a sort of scene of squalor in this sort of poor person's hut, and because a very large man who's eating an entire roast fowl of some kind, and there's a skinny guy who's guzzling uh, presumably wine or beer right out of a, a sort of a, a, a piece of crockery. Um, and so uh, there are all sorts of scenes of, of gluttony in there. I don't know that it was ever a dining table. I'm not sure. Um, it's in beautiful condition, so it's hard to envision how it was ever used, um, if it was ever used. But that's sort of a puzzle we have with all of this stuff. Who on earth would have wanted these things, and where would they have ever put them? <laughs> well, it's good that he had a patron. So <laughs> Yeah, well, and yeah, he seems to have been very wealthy, so he didn't have to go out and get, uh, obviously... Not, not, not obvious commissions anyway. I mean, one of the other Northern Renaissance paintings they have there is a Roger van der Weyden painting, a glorious scene of the depositions when Christ taken off the cross. And if you look, it has this beautiful little tracery, that, um, like, a, like you'd see um, like the stonework in between a medieval glass window, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, up in the corners of it, painted in there. But the tracery, if you look closely, is in the shape of crossbows because the thing was paid for by the Archer's Guild. Um, Bosch's work, as far as I know, doesn't show any indication of patronage like that. So, yeah, it's, it, it's not clear who bought these things and why. Uh, but they are astonishing. And the amount of vivid creativity um, that shows up all throughout them, it, it's really breathtaking to look at. Well, I, I have to say, Asa, that, that talking to you has just been delightful. <laughs> I think we have to stop. <laughs> Or I'll just keep asking questions for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> let me ask you a couple of quick ones, though. Uh, so, what are you working on now? What or like? What, what can we see next from you? Uh, well, I'm I'm working actively on uh, representations of Jews on medieval maps, which uh, nobody's really done anything with. Uh, I'm also working on a, a project with uh, my collaborator Susan Kim on a, an astonishing work uh, called the Frank's Casket, which is a whalebone box about the size of a, a tissue box, a cigar box, 
um, from early Anglo-Saxon England, probably from the north, that has on it scenes from uh, Germanic, Roman, uh, uh, and Judeo-Christian mythology, text in Old English and in Latin, in runes, in Roman letters, a riddle, and a code. Wow. It sounds yeah. like something from a, uh, a Dan Brown novel. Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I've actually thought about writing a novel about this work um, where, yes, it would be the key to unlocking the whatever the Illuminati secrets to the presence of the Holy Grail. So I guess the final question we like to ask our guests is what's your favorite monster? I, I got lots I love. I do love the headless blemies. Um, but I think my favorite is actually a fairly obscure one known as the Donestra, um, who shows up in the Wonders of the East and is a um, the text says that he is a soothsayer from the head to the navel, which is a fortune teller. It's a fortune teller from the head to the navel, and the other part is human, it says, which is puzzling in and of itself because the soothsayer is presumably human. So he's half human and also half human, uh-huh. uh, which fascinates me. <laughs> um, but he uh, knows all the languages of the world uh, and can speak to people and knows the names of their relatives. So he calls to people, hey, you, uh, I know your Uncle Bob. Come talk to me. And you go and talk to him. He talks to you for a while. And then he eats you entirely up, except for the head over which he weeps. Um, And so this sets him up as a kind of, it seems, I think at first blush, like a sort of psychologically conflicted monster, right? And why is he crying? Um, And uh, one uh, wonderful monster scholar, Jeffrey Cohen, uh, has written a great piece on this. And he, he argues that essentially the Donestra has eaten a person and therefore, since you are what you eat, has sort of recovered a bit more humanity and therefore has come to regret this act of eating a person. Um, Another uh, scholar, Tom Tyler, has written uh, rather differently about this and argues uh, that the the tears are a holdover from a different medieval monster, which is to say the crocodile. You know the crocodile tears, right? This expression, crocodile tears are uh, false tears. But I think uh, most modern folks don't know the origin stories of that, which is that uh, in uh, the Middle Ages, this might go back to the ancient world, I'm not sure, but they thought that uh, crocodiles loved to eat people, but loved our brains most of all, uh, but that our skulls were too thick for them to crunch through. Conveniently, though, their tears, which weren't really tears, they were ocular secretions, right, uh, were acidic, like the, like the blood of the xenomorph from aliens. And so they would, quote-unquote, cry these acidic tears onto the skulls of their human victims and therefore be able to break through their skulls and eat their brains. So uh, this is another possibility for what those tears over the head are. Uh, And again, it's at... I I love this creature, uh, first off, because I think it's just a great story, but also because I think it gets at a number of the uh, most important functions that monsters have. It presses on definitions of humanity... um, how much or how little we can identify with things that are unlike us. Um, it's present over in the East, this far and distant location, which the West has defined itself against since the ancient Greek period. Um, uh, and so I think it's uh, an incredibly potent and rich uh, creature and is also the cover image for uh, my book on the wonders of the East. So, hey. <laughs> I, well, I, you know, we did an episode on cannibalism and, uh, I guess universally, uh, studies on cannibalism have shown that the brain is supposed to be one of the best parts to eat. Which I'll is, bear that in mind. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't care for it, but I know that it is apparently full of uh, fat and uh, sugar. Well, and, just and, down the road from where I teach up here in Chico State, uh, a town just down the road from us is Marysville. And, of course, you'd think it was named for, you know, that Mary, but it's not. It's named for Mary Donner, one of the survivors of the Donner Party. <laughs> and it suits it to a T. Wow. Yeah. Is there a Donner's Diner? There really should be, but unfortunately there's not. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Monster Talk. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I appreciate it very much. It was a lot of fun. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and today we heard an interview with Asa Mittman discussing monsters from medieval maps. You can find links to Asa's books as well as interesting links about the art we discussed at the show notes at monstertalk.org or skeptic.com. 
Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Coming soon, we've got episodes on the Jersey Devil and some very interesting information about the Warrens, the ghost-hunting couple portrayed in the recent film The Conjuring. So stay tuned. Do you enjoy Monster Talk? Please help the show by giving us a review on iTunes and share the show with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. I'd really like to grow our listenership, and your reviews and shared links are the best way to do that. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. You can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally. Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.